Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. It is fascinating to watch God work. Back when the current resident of the White House, when he was elected into office just a mere seven, eight months ago, I got a call from a longtime member of GCA who is an online listener these days, and he was very upset that Biden was going to become the new commander-in-chief. And he actually asked me the question, why would God let this happen? Because he was convinced that the election was not fully legitimate. And so he asked me, why would God let this happen? My answer to him was, you have to remember two important things. The first, I'm sure you're going to agree with. God is sovereign, and he can do whatever he wants. And we don't get to question why he does what he wants to do. But secondly, world history revolves around Israel. And never forget that. Trump was a friend of Israel and even was moving the US embassy to Jerusalem And so there was a certain amount of peace that was breaking out in the Middle East. Trump was making peace pacts between various nations and Israel. And he was bringing a little bit more peace to the Middle East. And I said, and that's not the way that the Bible says it's going to wrap up. So why would God do this? I said, Biden has never been a friend of Israel. And I expect that he's going to be the cause for stirring up the Middle East again. Well, I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I had no idea how prescient I was being at that moment that a mere seven, eight months later, in one weekend, just watch God work, in one weekend, he managed to give the sworn enemies of Israel radical Islamic fundamentalist terrorist movements he managed to give them all the weapons they need to go attack Israel with. In a weekend, nobody went to bed a week ago Friday thinking that by the end of the weekend, the Taliban would not only be in control over in Afghanistan, but that they would have all the American weapons necessary to implement whatever war they wanted to implement against Israel. And it happened. Why would that happen? Well, number one, obviously, incompetence from Washington, D.C. But more importantly, because God is sovereign, and as I've been saying for 30 years, really, history, world history, all revolves around Israel and Jerusalem. And if you take your eye off the Middle East, you won't be able to understand what's going on in world history. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to begin tonight 
in Isaiah 51, where we left off. Starting around verse 17, that's where we left off, but we're going to start reading at verse 14. Because here is God yet again essentially saying the same thing I just said, which is human history is going to wrap up in Jerusalem. It's all about Jerusalem. It's all about God's faithfulness to his people. It's all God's redemptive plan for his people and particularly for Israel. And what we just witnessed in the last two weeks is yet again solid evidence that not only is the Bible true, but that God is still in the business of keeping his word and setting up world geopolitics so that they will culminate exactly the way he described it. Never miss that. This is not just incompetence at work. This is the hand of a mighty God putting the exact right guy into office in Washington. And now he's playing that guy like a puppet. And over the weekend, armed the Taliban to the teeth with very modern American weapons. Astounding from a simply political viewpoint in terms of international treaties and politics. Phenomenally stupid. So people are asking all over the news, all the talking heads are all saying, how could this happen? If you don't know your Bible, you don't know how that happened. If you know your Bible, you see it playing right into the hand of God. So yet again, in a world gone crazy, the word of an absolutely sovereign God brings us a tremendous amount of peace because the same God who enacted that over a weekend is the same God who promised to come get us and take us home eternally. And when I see stuff like that, I think it might be time to look up. <laughs> it might be time to say, you know, our sovereign God has promised us I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, even as the rest of the world has gone nuts. We have this peace that passes understanding, and that's a really good thing to have in this insane world. Amen. So, Chapter 51 of Isaiah. Ever since we began teaching through the book of Isaiah, I have said to you that occasionally in the book we're going to see prophecies from God that are short-term prophecies that are actually accomplished in human history that we can point at and say, well, that actually happened. What we're going to look at first here in the promise of restoration for the Jews who have been carted off and enslaved in Babylon we're going to see that that, after 70 years, is actually accomplished. And oftentimes, God will do this where he makes short-term promises, but then takes that prophecy and enlarges on it and casts it out into the future and even into the culmination of human history. So they're in Babylon, and naturally then they would start thinking, well, where is God? He's abandoned us. That's why we saw a couple weeks ago that God contended with them and said, where's the bill of your mother's divorcement? I didn't divorce you. I am correcting you. Well, the same thing here. God promises in verse 14, the exile, speaking there of the Jews who were taken into exile into Babylon, the exile will soon 
be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. Why? Because I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. That reference to Zion makes it obvious that he's talking to Jerusalem. Therefore, he's talking to the exiles from Jerusalem, who we know are exiled to Babylon. And so he gives them this piece of encouragement that he has not abandoned them there. They're not going to die in the dungeons there. They're going to be returned to Jerusalem. That actually happened. By the time you get to Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, you read about the return of the Jews to Jerusalem and that Cyrus even gives them the, the wherewithal and the food that it takes to go and do that. So God could say, and your bread's not going to be lacking. And then he worked through Cyrus to make sure that exact thing happened. And then Jerusalem is rebuilt and the temple is rebuilt. And so that promised that the exile will soon be set free and will not die in their exile, will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. We can actually look at that and say, that happened. That's a prophecy that was said in advance that actually did occur. But then starting at verse 17, God expands on that promise and casts that promise out into terms that we have not seen yet in human history, promises that are going to culminate in the book of Revelation. Here's what he says. Rouse yourself. Rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem. Is there any question who he's talking about? He's talking about Zion. He's talking about Jerusalem. And he's saying, rouse yourself. Wake up. Pay attention. Don't fall into the doldrums here. Continue to trust me. Continue to pay attention, just as we saw last week, when God said, pay attention to me. I'm not going to leave you in your bondage in Babylon. Rouse yourself. Rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's cup of his anger and the chalice of reeling that you have drained the dregs. In other words, I'm talking to the people who belong to me, who are Jerusalem, who have also drunk from the cup of my anger. I was angry at you. And I even told you why I was angry at you. And I told you why you're going into Babylon and I told you it would only be for 70 years. And once that is fulfilled, which here is referred to as the chalice of reeling, that you've drained to the dregs. So you've drunk it all the way down. You've gotten everything out of it that I intended for you to get out of it. So now we know exactly what people he's talking to. The people of Zion, the people of Jerusalem, the people who he has punished, who have then gone through that punishment to its completion. And then he describes their situation in verse 18 and says, There is none to guide her among all the sons that she has born. So of all the sons of Israel, all the sons of the Jews, there's nobody who can actually lead them or guide them out of their bondage. Nor is there one who can take her hand among all the sons that she has reared. This is God's way of saying 
There's nobody who can help you. There's no human that can help you. Even among all your children and all your sons, there is no leader strong enough to bring you back to Jerusalem. In other words, says verse 19, two things have befallen you. Here's the first thing. Who will mourn for you? If all your people are in exile, there's nobody to lead you. There's nobody to help you. And there's nobody to mourn for you. In other words, there's nobody who cares. Babylon came in, conquered you, and that's the end of it. Nobody in the Middle East is wringing their hands, worrying about, oh, but what about Judah? Instead, they're mocking you because you've gone into captivity. And they're saying that your God has abandoned you. In a minute, he's going to say they're blaspheming my name. So I'm also going to punish them. But here are the two things that have befallen you. Number one, who will mourn for you? The devastation and the destruction and the famine and the sword. That's all stuff that the Jews have undergone through being conquered. But he is also pointing out that that's your lot right now. It's all devastation, destruction, famine, and dying by the sword. And do you think any of them care? Do you think any of them pity you? Do you think any of them are mourning for you? And now here's number two thing that has befallen you. By contrast, how shall I comfort you? Okay, so there's nobody among all your people who can help. And there's nobody among the conquering people or the surrounding nations who have any empathy for you. Instead, you're simply going to undergo devastation, destruction, famine, and the sword. And then God says, and how shall I comfort you? So God is setting up a contrast. Pick your best people, the best of the sons of Israel. Pick the best of who you've got, and there's nothing they can do for you. What can I do for you? This is God yet again saying, pay attention to me. I'm your redeemer. I'm your deliverance. I'm the one who you're ignoring. How shall I comfort you? And then he goes back to saying, okay, so look at your sons. Look at the best of your people. Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street. That word helpless was added by the NASB translators. But that's the idea. They lay at the head of every street like an antelope caught in a net, full of the wrath of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. So what help are they going to be to you? They've been conquered. They are laying in the streets. In a moment, he's going to say, and their enemies walk over them like their sidewalks. Like their pavement. That's how, that's how far they have stomped down your sons. And they're going to help you? That's who you're counting on? That's where your confidence is? Your sons have all fainted. They're dead away. They lie helpless at the head of every street like an antelope that's caught in a net. And they're full of the wrath of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted. This is very much like God saying last week, pay attention to me. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. This is a 
typical phraseology that you find a lot in the Old Testament where people who are in trouble, people who are under the judgment of God, people who are under the hand of cruel masters, the Bible describes them as reeling about like drunk men. And so God has picked that up here and said, you're drunk, you're staggering, you can't walk straight, you can't get up, but it's not the wine that did it. It's because of your affliction. Behold, I, since no one else can help you, I have taken out of your hand that cup of reeling, that cup of my own punishment that has caused you to stagger, that has caused you to reel back and forth like a drunk man. I've taken that out of your hand, that chalice of my anger, and you will never drink it again. There is a moment coming when God says, Jerusalem in particular, who he's talking to here, will never ever again be punished by him. Now what that might mean is this particular cup, this particular chalice was given particularly to you to bring you into the captivity in Babylon. And that's that particular cup which you drank to the dregs. And you will never again be under Babylonian rule. You will never again have to worry about Babylon because they're going to be conquered by the Medo-Persians and they're going to be conquered by the Greeks and now it doesn't even exist. So maybe God is being very particular here and saying that that particular cup of reeling, you're never going to have to drink of that again. If that's the case, then we'd have to say, eh, true. So true, in fact, that human history says that Babylon was wiped out. So never again is Jerusalem going to have to drink from that particular cup. Either way, there is a promise from God, you're never going to drink from that again. And I'm going to take that cup of reeling, I'm going to take that chalice of my anger, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, lie down so that we can walk right over you. You have made your back like the ground, and like the street for those who walk over it. So, here again is one of those examples though that we've seen several times now in the book of Isaiah where God says, I'm gonna use these foreign nations, I'm gonna use these Gentile nations, these nations who don't know me, these God-hating nations, I'm gonna use them to punish my people Israel. But then when they abuse my people Israel, I'm going to punish them for the way that they abused my people. Again, a really, really sovereign God. And so here's God again saying, yeah, I'm going to use Babylon. But that's coming to an end soon. And when that comes to an end, that anger that I poured out on you, I'm going to pour it out on Babylon. And we know that he did. Because we saw Babylon fall in a night to the Medo-Persians. And then we saw the Medo-Persians, after God was done using them to restore Jerusalem, to restore the temple. After he was done with them, he let the Greeks come in and barrel house through there and then wipe it out, just like he promised it was going to become barren and a place for goats. That's history. We can look at that and say, yep, God did every single part of that. Okay, so that's the near-term prophecy that I spoke of. 
that's something that Isaiah could say. And within his own generation, he could see that actually come to its fruition. And so that is a near-term prophecy fulfillment. Whether Isaiah lived long enough to see it or not, it's still something that was accomplished by God in near history. But then in chapter 52, God uses the same language. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem. Chapter 52 says, awake, awake. Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. So it's a continuation of the same thought. It's a continuation of the same notion of wake yourself up, pay attention, listen to me, listen to what I am saying. I'm still your God. You're still going to be my people. And then God takes the fact that he has already accomplished freeing of his people, the return to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, the destruction of Babylon. He uses that as the basis to then say, and then watch what I do for you after that. Because I'm really going to make your redemption obvious. Even the nations are going to see it. Mm. Awake. Awake. Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. He's saying this to people who are in captivity, who do believe that God has abandoned them, who wonder what God is going to do with them ultimately and if they're ever going to be able to return to their homeland and God has reassured them that they are going to return just like all the prophets have said that they are going to return to Jerusalem and they're going to continue the worship in the temple because the line of the tribe of Judah has to walk into the temple in Jerusalem so they have this surefire prophetic guarantee that God is going to accomplish all this on their behalf even as they're suffering under the the boot of Babylon. And yet God says, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. They don't have any strength. They're conquered people who are laying in the streets while the Babylonians treat them as pavement. Mm. And God says, clothe yourself in your strength. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments. These people have no garments. These people have very little to wear. They are enslaved. They are impoverished. And the language of God is, you're going to be strong, and you're going to be a place of beauty, and you're going to wear your beautiful garments. Now, remember that God keeps addressing Zion and Jerusalem through this whole prophecy. He means, of course, his people, Judah, but he keeps addressing them as Jerusalem. And I think he is saying to Jerusalem in particular that Jerusalem is one day going to be strong because he says, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. So he's not just addressing the people. He's addressing the physical locality of Jerusalem itself, the place where he has chosen to place his own name, the seat of his worship on planet Earth, He's saying, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the circumcised and the unclean will no more come into you. You're going to be pure. You're going to be beautiful. You're going to be strong. Okay, now did that happen in the near term future to Isaiah? We'd have to say no, because... 
Jerusalem is still the center of an awful lot of warfare and difficulty, turn to Revelation 21. Because John sees the same thing. Keep your finger there in Isaiah. I love the parallels at this moment because Jerusalem was in exile and then God gives them this prophetic vision of their return, their ultimate establishment, and their future beauty to encourage them in their exile. John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos if he is writing best historical evidence is he's writing somewhere 92 to 96 AD. That's what Polycarp tells us, that it was during the reign of Domitian. So we know pretty much when he was there. If that's the fact, well, then he saw 70 AD. He saw Jerusalem fall. He saw the Jews scattered. He refers to himself in chapter 1 of the book as a man who has seen tribulation. And as he's writing to these seven churches in Asia, starting at Ephesus, which makes sense because he spent several years as the elder in Ephesus. So it makes sense that when God would want a letter written to Ephesus and surrounding churches, of course, he'd go through John. They would accept a letter from John. They would know John. They might even know his handwriting. And so, of course, that's a, an excellent way to communicate with those churches through the elder who was instrumental in keeping those churches going. And now he's in exile. And he has seen the church go through various levels. He has already seen Caligula. He has already seen Nero. He has already seen the persecution of the church even up to the time when he himself is exiled by Domitian. He has seen the tribulation that the church has gone through, and he has seen the tremendous tribulation of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. He has seen all that, and then God gives him a vision of the glorious future of the scattered church and of Jerusalem in particular. And it, it culminates in chapter 21 and the new Jerusalem which is the fulfillment of what we just read in Isaiah. And I saw, says verse 1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Let me just say quickly, parenthetically, he did not create a new heaven where he lives. His heaven is perfect. That's why he would say in the prayer that Tom just prayed for us, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The will of God is done in heaven. He doesn't need to remake the heaven where he lives. But there are three heavens spoken of in the Bible. There is the heaven that is the atmosphere around the earth, the heavens where the birds fly, where the clouds are. And then there's the heavens where the stars are. And then there's the third heaven where God is, which is why Paul said, I met a man who had been to the third heaven who heard things that it wasn't right for a man to speak. The heavens that surround the earth, the ones that are being polluted at this very moment, the ones 
as the earth is continuing to die, the heavens that surround, the atmosphere around the earth is continuing to die. And so God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be no more sea. That would be a very different earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Yes, of course, John would refer to that as New Jerusalem because he saw Jerusalem destroyed. But then there's going to be this other Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but because the language of bride is mentioned here, people say, oh, New Jerusalem then, that's not an actual physical place, it's not a city that comes down out of heaven, that's the church, because it's a bride. And so, as if God can't use the language of a bride adorned for her wedding day, most women will admit their beauty is maximized on the day of their wedding. They do everything they can on their wedding, to make sure that that's a day when they are really adorned well. Most women buy a dress for that day that they pretty much never wear again because that day they're adorned as a beautiful bride. And so that's the language that God chose to use. Like a bride who's adorned for her wedding, that's what the new Jerusalem's like, absolutely beautiful. Well, back in Isaiah, God said, dress yourself up in all your good clothes. Make yourself beautiful. New Jerusalem is coming like a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. And there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. When Isaiah mentions the beauty and the strength of the Jerusalem to come, it's right on the back of the mourning of old destroyed Jerusalem. And the promise here is no more mourning. Sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? I I long to be a part of this. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What did Isaiah promise? Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, you know, like a bride dressed up for her wedding day. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. The vision that John saw is the same thing. He just broke it out into categories. But New Jerusalem is going to be so pure 
that there's not going to be any more sinful residents in the New Jerusalem. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their part's going to be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me and said, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and a high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And it had a great and a high wall and 12 gates and the gates had 12 angels and the names were written on them which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Does it sound like God has given up on the 12 tribes of Israel? No. Not when he says that the new Jerusalem is going to have 12 gates that bear the name of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Seems pretty obvious. You can see why the language of Jerusalem in Isaiah is exactly the same as the Jerusalem spoken of by John. There's no conflict there. It is Jerusalem, the place where God has chosen to place his name and place his worship on planet Earth. That Jerusalem, who God has corrected and punished, but never completely done away with. And by the way, the Taliban can't do away with it either, mm. even with all their new weaponry. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and the names were written on them. And those names were the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke to me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with his rod. 1,500 miles in length and width and height, and they're all equal. So we're talking about a cube here of 1,500 miles. Not long ago, I heard a sermon from a, an advocate of post-millennialism. And he was trying to explain away the New Jerusalem and explain away the physicality of it. And he pointed out that it was a cube and that it was so big that the highest that we have ever flown in space exploration so far, that this city would be even taller than that and that it wouldn't fit on the planet because of the curvature of the planet. And so he was just doing away with the idea of this physical description of it. And then he said, because it's a large cube, where else do you find a cube in the Bible? Oh, well, that would be the Holy of Holies, and therefore all the New Jerusalem means is the presence of God. That's really all it means. Except that it doesn't matter whether the height goes out into what we now know as space, because it's a new heavens and a new earth. Amen. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't fit comfortably on any landmass right now. It's a new heaven and a new earth where there is no sea. John is not ignorant of these things. 
I expect to see a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And I expect it to be exactly as big and as cube-like as God describes it to be. Because just think of all the people that are going to be in it. And it's going to have 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, proving yet again the same thing Isaiah is trying to say. Look, there is this future for Jerusalem. A God-promised, God-declared future for Jerusalem. So take heart. God has not given up on you. And then John is on the Isle of Patmos, and he sees the same thing. There is this future, this glorious future for Jerusalem. And God has not given up on the 12 tribes. And in fact, he has dedicated the gates of the new Jerusalem to the 12 tribes. Sounds like a really consistent Old Testament, New Testament promise from God, doesn't it? It feels like God knows exactly what he's saying and what people group he's talking to and what city he's talking about. And old Jerusalem can be knocked down by the enemies of God. But new Jerusalem, he's not even going to let them in. And he measured its wall 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. I have no idea what that means, and yet it's really interesting that angelic measurements are the same as human measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And the first foundation stone was jasper, then sapphire, and chalcedony, and an emerald. And the fifth was sardonyx. And then sardius, and crystallite, and beryl, and topaz, and chrysoprase. And the eleventh was jacinth, and the twelfth was amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. That, by the way, is where we get the talk of the pearly gates in heaven. The gates of the new Jerusalem on earth have the pearly gates. Get that right. Which one is St. Peter's city at? Yeah, at all of them. He just he runs from one to the next. Yeah. The 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each of the gates was a single pearl. And the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light. The nations, the Gentiles, the the nations will walk by the light of God and the light of new Jerusalem. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination or lying shall ever come into it, but only those names that are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination, and no liars are ever going to come into it. Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion, clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down from heaven, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will never more come into you. Isn't that just what John said? It's a very consistent testimony here. Shake yourself up from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem, you're my holy city. I've made you promises. I'm not giving up on you. Listen to me. Pay attention to me. Shake yourself up from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains that are around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you'll be redeemed without money. In other words, I didn't gain any benefit. I didn't sell you away so that I could gain some riches for myself. I put you in your captivity because you deserved it, because you had rebelled against me. And therefore, since I didn't sell you, I can also redeem you for no money. And he's going to redeem them through the Redeemer who he's just about to talk to or talk about. This is chapter 52. We're on the brink of chapter 53. He's about to talk about the ultimate redeemer for Israel. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to reside there. What people is he talking about? Only the ones who went to Egypt, the 12 tribes of Israel. They went down to Egypt to reside there. And then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. That's the brief history of Israel so far up to Isaiah. First, they went into Egypt for a while and were oppressed there. And then Assyria took the 10 northern tribes. Now, therefore, verse 5, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without a cause? And again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking, saying, here I am. I'm going to make sure they know me. I'm going to present myself to them. I'm going to call them to myself. I'm going to introduce myself to them yet again. I am their God. They're going to be my people. And I'm going to punish their oppressors because of how they oppressed my people. And because they have blasphemed my name by saying that these people that I am in the midst of punishing, that I have given up on them. And where is your God? If I could conquer you like this, then where is your God? Not dissimilar from the question that I began with tonight when my friend asked me, why would God let this happen? The Jews who were in Babylon and the oppressive people of Egypt and the oppressors, the Assyrians, God has named them all and said that he is going to cause them to weep and wail and howl. My name is continually blasphemed all the day long, and therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day, I'm the one who is speaking, here I am. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Sound familiar? That's Romans 10, 15. Paul picks it up and says that very thing, how beautiful are the feet. He even says, as it is written. In fact, if you would, Micah, I see you pounding away at your iPad over there. Look up. 
Romans 10, 15 for just a moment, because Paul not only quotes from Isaiah here, but he even says, as it says, as the prophets have already said, how beautiful are the feet of those who pronounce good news. And so Isaiah is pronouncing good news of future hope to these oppressed, afflicted people so that they can be encouraged, so that they're not disheartened, so that they don't think that God has given up on them, so that they can see this glorious future that God has planned for them. Uh, what does it say in Romans 10, 15? In fact, read Romans 10, 14 and 15 for us. There, if you would, Micah. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And Paul said, as it is written. So we know he's quoting from Isaiah. When Isaiah said that, he said it in the context of reassuring Jerusalem, who were captive in Babylon at the time. And yet God says, good news. I've got good news. I've got good tidings. And I'm sending it to you through my prophets. Promises from me that you are my people and you are going to know my name. And I am going to call to you and say, I'm right here. And how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings this good news. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation. That's very, very important because I keep stressing. We're just about to hit the last part of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, where God is going to describe in great detail the suffering servant who is going to bring about redemption and salvation for his people, chiefly for Israel. The very people he includes when he says, my people went down to Egypt. So that's all 12 tribes. And then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Okay, that's the northern tribes. Now they're in Babylon. Okay, that's the southern tribes. And then God starts talking good news to these continually oppressed people and announces their salvation and then is going to describe how he's going to accomplish that salvation. The one who says to Zion, your God reigns. It's a remarkable statement. The same God who guarantees them that they're going to be his people and who says, I'm the one who's going to tell you, here I am, is the same one who is giving them good news in the midst of their persecution, and then is going to bring about their salvation so that Zion is going to know, oh, that's right, our God, the God who reaches all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that God is the one who's been in charge of all of human history. When New Jerusalem breaks out, when the ultimate restoration of Jerusalem and the 12 tribes occurs, there's going to be no question about who's really God. And it's not going to be any other God than Yahweh, the God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was in control of all human history. Because as I said, as I began tonight, you can only understand human history if you understand God's dealings with Israel. Because it started with God's dealings with Israel. And at the end of Revelation, it wraps up with God's dealings with Israel. 
and thank God for his grace that he would let you and me be part of it. Amen. That's just grace, grace, grace. But the promises he made to Israel, he's going to keep to Israel. So listen, says verse 8, listen, you watchmen, the watchmen in Jerusalem, the ones who are standing on the wall watching for an enemy coming, determining whether it's a friend or an enemy as they approach the gates. Listen, your watchmen are going to lift up their voices and shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. They're going to see that coming, and joy is going to break out. Break forth. Shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. He knows Jerusalem's laying waste when he's saying this. He knew that Jerusalem was laying waste after 70 AD. It's why he's bringing a new Jerusalem, where there's going to be all this joy and praise and a recognition of God. There's not going to be a temple and there's not going to be a sun or a moon because God is going to enlighten it and they are going to be his people and he is going to be their God and he's going to wipe away every tear and there's going to be no more sickness or death or mourning. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. As I said last week, obviously a reference to Christ. He has revealed his holy arm in the sight of all nations. That all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So the arm of the Lord is primarily to restore Jerusalem and the 12 tribes of Israel, but even the nations of the Gentiles to the very ends of the earth are going to see the salvation of our God. And when Isaiah says, our God, he's speaking on behalf of Jerusalem and the Jews. Yeah. The nations are going to realize their gods are not gods. They're going to realize that the only real God is our God. They're going to see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch nothing unclean. God is saying, depart, number one, from whether Egypt, whether Assyria, whether Babylon, these places where you are under this kind of oppression, I'm going to bring you out of there. Depart from there and don't touch anything unclean and go out from the midst of her and purify yourselves you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste. In other words, you're not going to have to run out out of fear. And you're not going to go as a fugitive. You're not just going to escape. I'm going to bring you out with a mighty hand. Because the Lord is going to go before you. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. I'm in front of you. I'm behind you. Because you're coming to worship me. And you're not going to have to run away in haste. And you're not going to leave like fugitives. Because I, the God of Israel, he gives himself that proper name. I am the God of Israel. Because everything he's been talking about for the last several chapters has to do with Israel and Jerusalem and his long-term intention and promises for them. 
And how is that all going to come about? How is he going to accomplish that for these rebellious, sinful, God-ignoring people? These people who have run away and chased their other gods. These people who have acted like harlots. These people who have chased after their foreign illicit lovers. These people who have blasphemed God. How is it that those people, just because they happen to be the people of God, how is it that those particular people are going to be brought back to redemption and salvation with God again? Righteous, holy God who doesn't change, who is not going to reduce his holiness one whit. How is he going to redeem those people after everything they have done and all the ways that they have rebelled against him and all the years that they have remained scattered. How is he possibly going to redeem those people? Verse 13, behold, my servant. And that's where we'll pick up next week because now he's going to talk about the suffering servant who's going to be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Because that's the means through which he's going to redeem every single individual of Jerusalem, of Israel, and of the Gentile nations. Everyone who is ever redeemed and brought to God so that they can carry the holy objects of God. So that they can worship him in spirit and truth. Every single one of them gets to that God through the Redeemer. The one who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And next week... Isaiah is going to describe him in great detail. And we're going to have an answer to the question, how does God accomplish all these incredible promises that he has made to Jerusalem? He's going to accomplish it through Christ. Because all redemption, all salvation, all forgiveness of sin is accomplished through Christ. Jew or Gentile, Israelite or rebellious little Carol, every single one of us are going to get to God through Jesus Christ the arm of the Lord got it? got it any questions? yeah it is interesting to see the how he says in verse 3 that you mentioned redeemed without money that there's the whole redemption process that there's no obligation there's it's it's done without you can't pay it back because Christ did it without money. It's his act of grace yeah. that accomplished it. There's no obligation there. The redemption part, but then also I noticed when we were in uh, uh, in Revelation 21 and talked about the water of life, said I will give freely there uh, anyone who thirsts from the, uh, the spring water of life without cost. Without cost. So it's the same thing. There's no money involved there. And it's the same thing that Isaiah is going to say. Ho, everyone who thirsteth, come ye to the water. You that have no money, come ye buy and drink. Right. So, so it's very the consistent. Process, like the, the, the bringing from the dead, redeeming, bringing back, and then the establishment in, in eternally, the, 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 the water of life, that whole process, no cost. It's all yeah. one big picture of God's grace. No cost to you. Right. That's grace. You don't deserve it. And you're going to get it anyway. Right. And this Bible consistently demonstrates that that's the kind of gracious, holy, righteous God we're dealing with. And even he points to Christ and says, that's the way to get to me. 
It's amazing. It, Old Testament or New, it only tells one story, the story of redemption through Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.